Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. The kind of people who worry about this kind of thing, which I am not probably that kind of person, might wonder whether or not this episode qualifies as a nose. Not exactly. And we've done things a little bit differently. I started out with a kind of a priori concept. And I called it hard-boiled women in cold climates. It's about the fact that in streaming series television, we've seen a lot of that kind of thing. Uh, women who are detectives operating in frozen environments. Or if they're not detectives, as is the case with Dot in Fargo, they are women of action and they are justice seekers for themselves and others. So we're putting together a group of people to talk about that today. One of them is a regular nose panelist. Two of them are people who write about TV and culture. And we're going to talk about Jodie Foster, and we're going to talk about Dot from Fargo, that's Juno Temple. We're going to talk about Emma Corrin in Murder in a Cold Climate. What do you want from me? Why don't you run from me? What are you wondering? What do you know? Why aren't you scared of me? Why do you care for me? Oh, True Detective, you had me at Billie Eilish. I've always liked that song. All right, I just want to say, so today's uh, episode is called Hard-Boiled Women in Cold Climates. And I wanted to shout out the CT Public Facilities team, who apparently knew we were doing this episode and decided to cut off. I don't think they merely cut off the heat in these studios because Cat Pastor and I both feel that there is actively cold air blowing <laughs> through the registers. So Cat's got like a Carhartt jacket on and I just, I'm underdressed, you know, but I did have a hoodie. I've got my headphones under the hood of my hoodie and I'm just going full on night country here. So that's it's wonderful. All right. So the whole idea is that I thought I saw a pattern, which I'm I'm prepared to have my concept be turned into a pinata. Uh, in fact, that would please me in an odd way. But I thought I saw a pattern in the most recent se- season of Fargo that also occurred in A Murder at the End of the World that also occurred in True Detective Night Country. These are very snowy scapes uh, against which an, an intrepid woman or in some cases two intrepid women Uh, are seeking the truth about a crime or, in the case of Fargo and Dot, just trying to get back home. Dot is basically kind of an Odysseus figure. Uh, So here to talk about all that or to repudiate it or whatever they choose to do, Melanie McFarlane is senior culture critic at Salon. Sean Murray is a stand-up comedian writer and the host of the Nobody Asked Sean podcast. Kat Rosenfield is a novelist, columnist for Unheard, it's H-E-R-D, and the co-host of the Feminine Chaos podcast. Her most recent novel is You Must Remember This. Um, 
not everybody has seen everything. <laughs> but we're going to start out with True Detective, which everybody has seen. Uh, this is uh, a Jodie Foster TV comeback after a long, long absence. It's also a comeback uh, and a revival of the True Detective franchise, although it's no longer overseen by its former proprietors. Uh, and a sh- creator showrunner named Issa Lopez uh, and director Issa Lopez is the person behind it all right now. Uh, it takes place in a small, small, very, very northern town called Ennis, Alaska. Uh, a bunch of dead bodies have been found. Although when I say a bunch of dead bodies, I'm not really doing it justice. What has been discovered is basically the worst nightmare fuel, frozen, lean cuisine, ice sculpture of Rodin's Burgers of Calais ever or something. Uh, there's like a lot of dead guys uh, out in the ice is the easy way to say it. Uh, and before we hear from our panel, let's hear a little bit uh, from uh, Jodie Foster as Liz Danvers. She is uh, the top cop in Ennis. Uh, and Finn Bennett, who's kind of her protege, a guy named Peter Pryor. This is a one cat. Start asking questions. Okay. Uh, polar bear. The doors don't lock, right? To avoid accidents. Okay. It comes in. The men panic. They run out. And they undress. Why? Paradoxical undressing. People with severe hypothermia, they feel hot, they undress. You've been studying. All right, keep asking. Okay. What about the clothes? I mean, they don't even match the bodies. There's only... Five pairs of pants, the three shoes are missing. Okay. Maybe they weren't fully dressed when they ran out. What's the question? Why weren't they fully dressed? No, ask again. How scared do you have to be to run out in the ice without any shoes? So we're only two episodes in. Max is doing that thing where they drop an episode every week. Um, so, uh, Marion McFarlane, uh, Melanie McFarlane, I'm sorry, I almost made you into a jazz pianist there. Uh, Melanie McFarlane, <laughs> get us started. Uh, and, I mean, this is a revival of the True Detective franchise. It's also, we should say, a project that uh, Isla Lopez already was working on and had no idea of pounding it into the, the round or square hole of, of True Detective, but has done so ably. Um, I don't know. Just start anywhere you want. You've really written a lot about this and thought a lot about it. So uh, you get us started. Yeah, I think one of the things that I like about it the most would be the most obvious, which is the fact that this before um, in the three seasons that followed that that ran up to this, each of those seasons was not just specifically about a man or two men, but it was very much, there were, there, there were meditations on different aspects of masculinity. Um, I think the first, that was the most obvious, certainly. Um, but each one had its own kind of approach. Um, you know, season three that had Mahershala Ali had a lot to do with having to deal with the loss of memory and the loss of, you know, what how that connects to loss of potency in the world. And I there are so many ways that if someone had just done a gender flip that this could have gone wrong and being very patronizing. But I think the fact that they gave it to Issa Lopez, who very thoughtfully considers every single angle of what it means to be a woman, not just, you know, in the law enforcement profession, 
But in Ennis, Alaska, where, you know, it's very a, a town that runs on industry and a lot of those jobs there are really, you know, geared towards men. It's a mining town. And in fact, the mining operation there um, is doing something that's fouling the water. Um, and a lot of the people who are protesting that those protests are led by women. Um, and there's all these different aspects in this season that um, I don't think we've seen yet. But, you know, you get to see every single, not every, but many aspects of what it means to be a woman, not just in this world, but also in an indigenous community and how that um, is different when you have a small, isolated town where everybody knows each other. You know, how does that community interact with, um, you know, with the white people who are there? You know, how, what does it mean, you know, for instance, Navarro, um, that's Kaylee Rice's character, she is her mother is from that community and her father is from you know the lower the lower 48 um so she's kind of half in half out so these are the things that we get to explore um both through Jodie Foster's character and Kaylee Rice's character but also others that come in um and then I also wrote about the sexuality which I think is a huge part of True Detective yeah so why don't we circle back to that after we uh, hear sure. from the rest of the panel here though yeah, sorry. Uh, no that's fine um but yeah so Sean I I just want to hear whatever you're thinking about or bursting to say but I do want to say apropos uh, of what she just said I think another thing that's there consciously or otherwise this is one of the ways you have a successful series these days is you just have a lot of stuff a lot of mimetic material a lot of content that people can play around with so that out there right now, there are people obsessing, <laughs> seriously, obsessing about the SpongeBob toothbrush that one of the fairly minor so far characters has and thinking about whether SpongeBob is the yellow king from <laughs> season one of True Detective. But there's just tons and tons of that stuff, right? If you want to just, just geek out about this series, there's a lot to work with. But Sean, do whatever you want with that. Well, Colin, if I can call you Colin, um, you I think there's a, I think that stuff that you're talking about, like the, um, like the, 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 the material to investigate that people love about True Detective, especially in season one, I think it's one of the strengths of the show, like the marrying of like this project that Issa Lopez was working on with like the original <clears throat> season of True Detective's season one specifically where like um like the the elements that like sort of reoccur like the the re recurring um uh well not a recurring character but like the recurring character of a character who's mentioned in the first season and uh i think that's like a lot of people were sort of disappointed that a lot of that stuff didn't necessarily uh come together in the way that they expected and i think that can be sort of the worst part of a fandom or something like this but that's i think true detective does such a good job of like actually giving you something to chew on aside from just the speculation of is this actually you know some <clears throat> mass conspiracy that stretches back to you know across the entire country you know it's like this also like like I mean, it's Jodie Foster you know what I mean you get to like actually enjoy the performances and enjoy the actual story being told so you're not just kind of like um, focusing on like the Easter eggs of is this a connection to season um season one even though that stuff is fun though you know yes. like um, i do enjoy the idea that uh <laughs> the spongebob toothbrush could represent the yellow king because spongebob has been a yellow king in my life for a very long time <laughs> see right there so yeah i mean and and cat to to sean's point 
um, we you wouldn't obsess about anything if this weren't just compellingly presented. To me, it really is from the very first notes of Billie Eilish singing that song all the way through. There's something about this series that does. I've only seen two episodes. Most of us have. I think Melanie's seen all six. But so which makes her very dangerous, obviously, on the show. But, um, you know, so far it is something just one thing makes you hungry for another. But go wherever you want with this. Yeah. So I think um, the interesting thing about True Detective and the way that it kind of lost its way in the the most recent two seasons before this one, which were like kind of forgettable. I don't know if anybody even bothered to watch them or remembers them. Um, but its its first season was very, very strong because they leaned into the sort of horror elements and like the sense of um, something deeper underneath the surface. You know, yes, it was detective sort of genre story, but they also threw back to all of this Lovecraftian stuff. And it was like, you know, the darkness at the center of the universe. That's also the darkness at the center of a man's soul. And what does it all mean? And people got really obsessed. Yeah. With geeking out about that and, um, and finding connections between these things. Um, what they're doing now, I think is something very similar leaning into not just the kind of tradition of sort of Scandinavian, like dark, wintry detective stories, but also into um, sort of like snowy horror tropes. And uh, the thing that I I really noticed um, when you were talking about like the kind of that that chimera of men, you know, frozen in the snow where you, you have heads and legs and you can't tell what belongs to who. That's straight out of John Carpenter's The Thing, um, which is like the most visceral, also with like an Arctic set horror story. I think that they're tapping into something that is very like intriguing and visceral and that people, um, you know, want to kind of unpack that you can't you can't really look away from because it's so riveting. So now I think we do want to maybe just zoom in a little bit on Foster's character and Melanie, to your point also about sex uh, in this movie or in this series, rather. Uh, one thing we should say, it's my understanding, and I think you've talked to Foster, but uh, it's my understanding that she wasn't interested at first and that uh, Lopez really had to make this character less appealing, actually, uh, make her kind of a, a worse person. Uh, and uh, maybe you can say, say a little bit about that. Liz Danvers is obviously going to be a very admirably dogged cop, but that doesn't mean we have to like her. And so far, we probably don't like her all that much. Yeah. Um, and I would say that um, the way that Isa Lopez writes her is that you understand how capable and how necessary she is to this to this um, this small town. Um, everybody knows her. You know, there's a there's kind of a healthy fear, I would say, in a way. Um, at the same time, she also is. You can tell that there's something about her that she is compelled to use her sexuality um, for her own kind of. She's she's definitely pushing something down. Um, there are small hints to that throughout. I'm not giving anything away. I trust me. If you watch, you've, you've kind yeah. of seen, they're starting to, to hint at that, but it's, it's an interesting, it's, it's very interesting. If you look at the larger, the larger scope of how women are presented on television and it's particularly, you know, in true detective and seasons past, they were very much objects and they were devices to, um, you know, e to either, say something about the men in their lives or to be used as kind of power plays. They were pawns. 
Um, but I think what they do here is they turn sexuality into something where these women are very much in control of it. They decide it's really on their terms. They have their specific reasons and they're not romantic necessarily. Um, and I think that's something that I know for sure that Issa Lopez wanted to show it that way, that there was no, there is a little bit of romantic um, overtone in one of the relationships, uh, but it's not coming from the women. I think that's that's one of the most interesting parts about this plot. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, uh, there's not so, I mean, there's isn't really the male gaze in this. There's maybe sort of the female gaze. It's also really interesting. You know, there's that usual inversion uh, that, you know, a super, I mean, Jack Nicholson uh, in one movie is supposedly attractive to both Amanda Peet and Diane Keaton. <laughs> And he doesn't really look all that great. Uh, and and here, you know, Foster is 61 and she clearly hasn't had any work done. I don't know if they're making her look any more grizzled in this than she is in real life. But uh, and and Fiona Shaw, who's 65 and is maybe the kind of crone figure in this. She yeah. is she's made to look older than she really is, I think, or allowed to look older than she typically would be uh, in this. You know, this isn't about sort of hot women attracting uh, att attracting men. It's sort of the other way around. It's women deciding which men they want uh, and then going to get them. And and Melanie, I love her. I love Jodie Foster's booty call with Christopher Eccleston, where she puts on her kind of virginal white parka <laughs> and comes and gets them. But yeah, just finish up this thought. Well, I was going to actually re return to something that you just said, which is you mentioned the male gaze and the female gaze. Uh, I recently um, spoke to Issa Lopez, and one of the things that she said, I actually brought up that term female gaze to her mm -hmm. and asked her what she thought about it. Um, and one of the things she said was she said it's kind of an outdated term. Um, and I think the, one of the reasons I was compelled to ask her that is that when you watch this, you can tell very specifically that a woman thought about this story and thought about different elements of it. But when we think about the female gaze, as particularly in TV, there have been many pieces I'll you know go back to it, it, that that term was really defined some time ago by Outlander. There's kind of this romantic veneer of you know, showing women, you know, taking pleasure in a very specific way in these intimate scenes. Here, it's completely different. It's not about pleasure. It's about power. And specifically in the, you know, in the context of the characters that we're watching. Um, and that changes. So she's saying that the term is outdated. However, she understands the necessity of taking an approach where you can tell that a woman made this, but it's not necessarily what you would think of as, quote, the female gaze. It's not necessarily one thing. Yeah, that's, and I think, uh, that's, like, a, that's a great point and a great analysis, uh, I, I think. Uh, and, and thank you for that. Um, Sean, I mean, one thing we can say is, you know, sh Jodie Foster, she doesn't act a lot these days. She directs. She's behind all kinds of other projects. And I, she, but she's a movie star. I mean, she's on television right now. And I just am aware of how happy I am to see Jodie Foster back and doing Jodie Foster stuff. But, but share your thoughts too. Well, I, I absolutely agree on that. I think that's part of why <clears throat> Issa Lopez pushed so hard to have Jodie Foster attached to this, uh, this project. Uh, I don't dislike season three as much uh, as uh, many others might, but I do think um, there's definitely a steady decline from um, 
or, or like there's a drop off from the, the the highs of season one, and I think a, a huge part of like people forget about what's what made season one so good is not only like leaning into the the horror elements and like the kind of conspiracy stuff, but like Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey were just knocking it out of the park every single week, uh, and uh, especially you know the part of the, the McConaughey that was uh, happening at the time where it's like oh this guy could actually like really act and he's just been slumming it I guess for forever, <laughs> but um. Like when you have somebody like uh, Jodie Foster, like lending her talents to a project, uh, especially considering like we haven't seen much of Jodie Foster lately, um, it just it just like it makes you want to watch. Like like I'm sure a lot of people who are tuned into this season are a big part of it is that they're tuned in because oh Jodie Foster's in this. Like okay, like they must be like really uh, serious about like trying to revive this thing. Yes. Um, and one thing we know about Jodie Foster, unlike Matthew McConaughey, she's not going to start making Lincoln commercials where she's driving around, you know, as Liz Danvers talking about everybody whose husbands she slept with. Or, uh, Don't be so sure. <laughs> yeah, I can't promise that to you listeners. So, I would love to see that. <laughs> so, Kat, I don't know. I think maybe this is a moment where we start to bridge a little bit from from Danvers to um, to a murder at the end of the world with Emma Corrin. Uh, they they play a character named Darby uh, in that. But as we do that, as we kind of wave goodbye with our frozen fingers uh, to True Detective, I don't know. Say a little bit about what you're thinking uh, about the women in True Detective. Well, I think it's actually very interesting, as Melanie was noting, that you can you can sense them trying to do something different with these female characters. And there's been this kind of thing in Hollywood for, I would say, like the past 10 to 15 years now, where people want to create a quote unquote strong female character. And that's basically just code for we're going to take a woman and make her like a man. Um, as though there's and it, and it kind of erases the the fullness of all of the different ways in which a, a woman can be and can be feminine. Um, you know, to say that like if for a character to be strong, she actually just has to act like a dude. She's got to like swagger around and have a lot of casual sex and resolve her conflicts by punching things. So um, this is obviously a different take on that. And I do love the character of Danvers. I mean, I I don't think I would necessarily want to like have her at my house for dinner, but she is incredibly complicated and interesting. And like, a, you know, one of these examples of, of a person who's like feminine in her own way, but she's, she's doing it. Um, <laughs> she feels real. So compare that with a murder at the end of the world, which I think had ambitions of doing something like this. Um, but the problem with the murder at the end of the world, and also maybe particularly and specifically with the character of Darby Hart, is this show is about as subtle as an after-school special, and it really wants to teach you a lesson. And the character of Darby ends up acting as this sort of I don't really know how to put it, except that she's just such a Mary Sue. And she ends up solving the mystery just because she's supposed to solve the mystery. It's not believable. Um, and one of the kind of themes of the show, she actually says it out loud in I think the third episode, is nobody sees a 24-year-old girl coming. Um, and this they kind of beat you over the head with this thesis repeatedly that you know nobody takes her seriously because she's so young and hot. And um, I found this 
very frustrating. I, I wrote about this part of the show for the free press um, just to talk about how it's not it's not only not subversive, but not even particularly original to make your lead character in a mystery like this be like a super sexy, bisexual, vaguely autistic 24-year-old hacker girl. Um, you know, like one of the weird things about Murder at the End of the World is that nobody sees Darby coming because apparently in this universe, the girl with the dragon tattoo does not exist. Yes. So um, we're going to do a little bit more Murder at the End of the World uh, in the next segment, plus a little bit of Fargo in the next segment. Hopefully have some time for endorsements at the end. But before we go to a break here, um, Melanie, I, I don't want to shortchange uh, Callie Rice. One thing that I, I, I do want to say is that reading your uh, writing about this, I realize I have to see maybe this weekend uh, Issa Lopez's original movie, which is sort of a children's ghost story, horror, cartel, something. Something. Yeah. Uh, and Callie Rice's previous um, movie in which I think she plays a, an avenging boxer who goes undercover in I, I don't know. They, but Callie Rice is I didn't really know her. I'd never heard of her before. She's pretty amazing in this. She is. And and to be clear, Callie Rice was a boxer. I mean, yeah. it is um, so that her previous role, her breakout was not exactly that much of a stretch for her. But I also think that one thing that this series does quite well is take her character. Um, and, and I say this just in terms of a lot of athletes that make a transition onto film. This is, you know, if you knew nothing about her coming in, you would still you would still see a bit of that athleticism and muscularity, but it's not the center of her role. Um, she gets to be all these different types of women throughout the season um, and also contend with what it means to be an indigenous person who is not quite, you know, at, in the center of this community. Um, you see it in the first episode where when she goes on out on a call, one of the women says to her basically, you know, like, what's, what's your true name? Um, and she doesn't answer. Um, but those those types of things being in and out um, become both an accent and something she has to, you know, to grapple with throughout throughout the season. And I think um, the fact that the actor herself is indigenous um, actually helps her grapple with that, um, helps her helps her kind of aug augment the characters, um, you know, the character's journey through through both identity, but also, you know, connection to this case. Um, I love the fact that she gets to be shown off in this role in, in such an extensive way. Yeah, no, she's terrific. And she's sort of the anti-Clarice uh, Starling in the sense that Clarice, uh, Judy Foster Clarice in Silence of the Lambs, is mm. mentally incredibly powerful and, and powerful of soul, I think, too. But there's a physical fragility to her. Is she even going to be able to hold the gun without it shaking and stuff like that? You just feel with Kaylee Rice's character, Navarro, that, you know, anybody who just goes one-on-one -on -one with her is going to lose. Um, mm -hmm. He just has that quality to it. So, yeah, let's grab a little break here. We'll come back. We'll talk to Kat and Sean about a murder at the end of the world. We'll talk to Melanie and Sean about Fargo.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, so we've sort of got our needle drops all messed up here now because the Annie Lennox song you heard at the end, that incredible airworm that you can't get out of your head, is from A Murder at the End of the World. Uh, the Yes tune is from Fargo, so everything's all screwed up. But everything's really good, too, because we've got a wonderful panel here today. Uh, and now we're sort of going to do the thing, you know those puzzles where you have to get the lions and the missionaries across the river or something in the boat? Uh, so Melanie McFarland, senior culture uh, uh, critic at Salon, uh, who has seen two of the three things we're talking about today. Sean Murray is a stand-up comedian, a writer, and the host of Nobody Asked Sean podcast. He's seen three of the three things. And then Kat Rosenfield, uh, a novelist, columnist for Unheard, the co-host of the Feminine Chaos podcast. Most recent novel is You Must Remember This and who wrote about a murder at the end of the world for the free press and has not seen Fargo. But as we've already established, has seen True Detective. So very complicated. So, Sean, I'm going to have you go first with a murder at the end of the world. Uh, I, I want to quickly say it is kind of an Agatha Christie, Hercule Poirot thing whole bunch of people stuck in one place, really stuck in one place. In this case, it's basically Elon Musk's bunker in Iceland, like really fancy, fancy bunker that goes maybe 10 stories underground. Uh, Elon Musk is not Elon Musk. He is played by Clive Owen. His name is Andy Ronson in this. Uh, and uh, as um, as Kat was suggesting in the previous segment, the detective is uh, Emma Corrin is Darby Hart. Uh, we'll play a little clip from the show. You're going to hear the show's co-creator, Britt Marling, who plays the wife of Andy Ronson, Lee Anderson. I don't know. Is she his wife? Or do they just have a baby together? I'm not. I think she's his wife. Anyway, uh, here they are uh, having a conversation. A3, Kat. Bill didn't kill himself. Is it a hunch? The objection was in his dominant arm. No prints on the needle. How do you know that? This is my 57th crime scene. Are you saying you think that Bill... I'm saying he didn't inject himself. Someone else did. Darby, let me hire you. To find whoever is hiding behind that mask. I'm an amateur sleuth. Clearly very good at it. No, isn't that? I don't take cases for money. You do it for love, and especially in this case. 
I hope you'll be careful, Darby. If Bill was murdered, it was very sophisticated. You have only one real advantage. No one sees a 24-year-old girl coming. Another guest on a retreat. So long as you play the part. All right. So, Sean, um, yeah, I, well, I just start wherever you want to start. Well, I, um, I kind of wish uh, I've I read uh, one of Kat's pieces on uh, A Murder at the End of the World. And I kind of wish she didn't so thoroughly, like, uh, like sort of attack it not attack it but you know like um analyze it because it kind of really gets at a lot of stuff that i issues that i had with it which is that um you know Kat mentioned that it's 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 not it's not subtle about like trying to have a message you know whatever but it's like it's not, it's not even so much that it's not subtle it's, like, it's not even subtle about like the thing it's not subtle about is not even that interesting anyway it's, it's, like, it's not an original like kind of fresh idea or whatever it's like at least if you're going to be sort of um sort of very out front about this like whatever you're trying to message you're trying to get across like at least like make it an interesting sort of take or something like 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 the character the the whole idea of like oh you don't see a 24 nobody sees a 24 year old girl coming it's like well like you've been described as the lady sherlock holmes. she's like one third neo one third uh sherlock holmes and one third like like i don't know just name any hot woman uh, hot young woman. So it's like, why wouldn't they see you coming? You you have pink hair. You're you're a amateur sleuth who everyone in this space knows. Like like, like the show, does the show not realize that we know that she's a hacker who is like an amateur detective and she's really good at it and she writes books about mysteries that she solved. Like I don't understand, like why they wouldn't see her coming, especially in this the setting where like <laughs> it's not like she's being introduced into a new environment. Everyone there knows she's a, a detective. Yeah, although I'm going to say, I'm going to invoke, I read Kat's piece and I thought it was really, really good. Um, if I were going to make a counter argument, I think I would invoke, by the way, Sean, I think the third, the third third in that group of three that you were doing is kind of Clarice Starling to, even to the point where if you look at Emma Corrin, particularly in left profile, she really looks a lot like the younger Jodie Foster. Um, yeah. And, and, and there is a, a bit of Clarice, I think, in this character. Um, but I, so, Kat, what I would invoke if I were going to try to argue with you, which I'm actually not going to do, but uh, is they might be sort of using, because this is a little bit more Agatha Christie. It isn't the kind of gritty, you know, 2024 thing that, you know, that happens on Prestige TV a lot. But they're kind of using the Harry Potter artistic license. And by that, I mean, you know, Harry Potter is supposedly this put upon schlemiel underdog, except that we know pretty much from the jump that he's an incredibly rich, rich, you know, incredibly wealthy super wizard. <laughs> but somehow or other, he's always getting the short end of the stick because people don't respect him. And it's kind of what you're talking about, right? It just it doesn't really square with the reality. Yeah, I mean, the idea that nobody sees her coming is, I, I don't know. I mean, it, 
I I know from having read interviews with Britt Marling and some of the other people involved in the show that they set out in writing this to be subversive and they were very big on how, you know, there's not going to be violence against women on screen and they're going to like undercut the the trope of the female victim by making her the detective and the crime solver. Um, but it just it just does kind of beggar belief that nobody notices this best-selling true crime author who is wearing a plunge neckline and no bra so you can see the giant tattoo that she has inked right between her boobs um i mean she's you know she's an attention grabbing creature and i guess i think the show was trying to kind of eat its cake and have it in this way um and and that's why it's unsuccessful. It is it is trying to kind of explicitly lead the audience to a conclusion that the audience would otherwise never reach organically. I, I, the other part of this, you know, Sean and, and his guys were not really the people who have, will have interesting opinions about this. But there's, there's a way in which both Liz Danvers, Jodie Foster's character, uh, and then Emma Corrin's character, Darby, um, they're sort of Al Pacino in Heat. There are they are these crime solvers who just have to leave the rest of their lives behind. You know, I mean, Jody can have kind of power sex, but she's she's really super super focused on the case to the exclusion of everything else. And and Emma Corrin's character, Darby, in her relationship with Bill, Bill is the one who feels. Bill is the one who wants to talk about love and falling for one another and stuff like that. And and for whatever reason, and there are a lot of possible reasons for this, Darby really has a hard time getting there, a much harder time. It's more the typical male role, I think, for both of these. And and I I like that inversion, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'll get to that in a second, but I do want to address your Harry Potter thing. I think the the thing (laughs) with the Harry Potter thing is like no one else knows that. it's It's like no one else no one at Hogwarts knows anything about Harry except that he's the boy who lived. You know yeah. what I mean? In this show, like she's introduced on the airplane in the first episode to everyone else as the Lady Sherlock. Like anyone could research her and know who she is. Whereas at Hogwarts, they're like, "Oh, this is just that kid who's clearly poor." Uh, it doesn't find out he's rich until later on, and then also we hate him for a number of different reasons. Where in this show, it's like, why wouldn't they know this about you because you've been introduced in this way, and especially the fact that. The very rich guy who wouldn't have just invited any 24-year-old girl, you would have had to have something interesting about you to be invited to this retreat at the end of the world. But I do like, uh, to your point, the the inversion of that thing. I do like that. Um, but I, uh, I think it is sort of just like, <laughs> it's, I would say one note, because that's not what I'm trying to get at. But it's, it's like very like, it's a very simple inversion, which is interesting. But I don't think there's enough interesting around it to... Um, to really make that like stand out, I think like t- to the point of like True Detective, how it flips like the it, it's um it True Detective this season doesn't just say let's just make Rust and uh was it Marty um from season one women they they actually paint uh an interesting uh uh sort of uh paint interesting characters with with these two new detectives um uh, two new leads rather. Um, as opposed to this show where it's like all the characters, um, to me at least, feel just very much like a, a list of like character traits. It's like, okay, well, she's got pink hair and she's a hacker, but she's also a detective. It's like, it's just, I don't know, it's not as, it's not as interesting. So it's having like that, that inverted sort of thing um, of like, 
well, he's the one who's actually sensitive. And he's like, oh, we were solving a murder together, but I had to get out of here because it was too much. Like, or I didn't want to have sex with you after we solved the uh, sexual assault. It's like, I, I don't know, man. What, what are we doing? So um, uh, we should say that Emma Corrin has already said publicly that she hopes there's a second season. I believe the second season. Yeah, this whole, well, I believe the second season is called "We Have to Talk About Zoomer." Um, as in fact, Cat, <laughs> why does Andy Ronson have a five-year-old or five years and nine months and thirty-two days or whatever he says he is, his kid named Zoomer, which is a different generation, <laughs> which is a different generation from what Zoomer belongs to? Uh, but you don't have to answer that question so much. But I, I, if, if there's a problem with this series, and I think the series does something very well, which is it creates a series that you can watch if you kind of like, you know, edgy, noir, Nordic kinds of stuff uh, that with a lot of tech in it. But you can also, if the other person in the house kind of likes Agatha Christie, there's sort of meat in the middle there. But I think the problem with the series is all the other characters are so incredibly underdeveloped, you know, even for an Agatha Christie novel. The Raul Esparza and the Joan Chen and all those people you, except for the astronaut, Sean, you don't really get to know them very well enough to care about what happens to them. No, not particularly. I mean, of course, that can serve its purpose when you don't want to get too attached to anybody who ends up dead. But um, I think, you know, you have a good point about these characters being so flimsy. And I think that's in part because each of them is the embodiment of some kind of politicized message, basically, and then just made into human form. So, you know, the, oh, I don't know, you have like the disabled guy uh, who's in the wheelchair, who's also gay, um, and then he has a sexual side plot, which is supposed to be, again, subversive, you know, oh, your expectations were subverted. And, and what does that say about you, viewer? Like, what kind of bigot are you? Um, and you have, uh, you know, these these points about climate change being kind of, um, I mean, they're just they're right there on the page. They're like, there's a lot of stuff that's really, really on the nose. The fact that the child is named Zoomer also is, you know, a good example of this. Actually, though, that is one of the biggest plot holes to me um, that I've still been sort of unable to figure out. And I don't know if it's because the show failed to hold my attention at some crucial moment or if it's because they just didn't bother to try to like think this through and resolve it. But the subplot and the mystery surrounding who Zoomer's real father is based on the timeline of the show, it seems basically impossible for <laughs> it to have been. I mean, you're like, not supposed to think about stuff like that, probably. I'm not sure. But you know what? We got to grab a break here anyway. Uh, thanks, Kat Rosenfield. Uh, let's take a break. We still have to talk about Targo, Fargo. We have to talk about Dot. We got to talk about all those people. Who left because of pain? Thank God a They'll die no more. They'll suffer not. Thanks to Cat Pastor for technically producing in a very cold climate these studios, which are really cold, uh, and to Jonathan McPants for producing this particular episode. So we're going to finish with Fargo. We'd hope to have time for endorsements. It doesn't seem like it's going to work out that way. Juno Temple plays Dorothy Dot Lion. She is uh, fleeing a, a past that includes time as the abused wife of a terrible sheriff, played by John Hamm, a terrible right-wing Christian militia um, sheriff who also 
inexplicably has nipple rings. Uh, actually, um, there is an explanation for that. But uh, let's hear a quick clip here, and then we're going to have Melanie and Sean talk about this a little bit. This is B1, Cat. Ma'am, I'm sorry. Could, um, could you... I'm worried about my daughter. We just saw her mama carted away in handcuffs. Well, you should have thought about that before you tased the officer. Should have thought, oh boy, I hope my daughter don't see her mama carted away in handcuffs. What's the world coming to is all I'm saying. Neighbor against neighbor. That, I agree with you there. We were just trying, me and my girl, to get out. School board meeting, my ASS. And then Mr. Abernathy, the math teacher, he came at me like something from a zombie movie. Which don't come at a mama lion when she's got her cub. You know what I mean? But the officer, that... He was just wrong place, wrong time. Well, here's what I know. It's a beautiful day. And you know what they call a herd alliance? A pride. So think about that. That's uh, Juno Temple, who you loved so much uh, in Ted Lasso, but nailing that Midwestern accent and Richard Mujani uh, as police, Minnesota Police Deputy Indira Olmstead. So, yeah, they're nailing the accents, Melanie, but they're nailing a lot of other stuff, too. Uh, this one feels more faithful to the original Fargo movie than many of the Noah Hawley conceived offshoots on television have so far. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you think about it. Oh, I agree. Um in a way, he really does return to that original concept. Um, well, I think the main difference is that he's taking the idea of Minnesota nice that really drives the Fargo concept that, you know, the Coen brothers brought to life through every single character. And he introduces this season by essentially saying it's a put on mm -hmm. um, and you see all the way that it's dead. Um and yet, one of the ways that Dot maintains her dignity through this season that's all about debt and fleeing a, you know, fleeing an abusive husband um, is that she's always nice in every single in every single scenario, even when she is fighting for her life. Um, and by the way, winning. <laughs> so those kinds of things are are explored throughout the season really well. The strongest characters in this are three different women. You heard two of them. The other person in the car is Rachel um, Morjani's Indira Olmstead. Um, and she is a cop who's also dealing with debt and a husband who is useless. Um, and then the my favorite my favorite person in this has been Jennifer Jason Lee. Um, and she plays Dot's mother-in-law, Lorraine, who is essentially a billionaire who uh, made her billions on the backs of the debts of poor people. Um, so those three women in the end end up becoming uh, becoming something different than what they were in the beginning. Let's just say that. Yeah. And Jennifer Jason Lee's kind of revived her Hudsucker voice, which is fun. Um, yes. So she's got a great, her, whole, her deliveries are terrific. So, Sean, because our time is a little bit tight, I won't force some question on you. Just talk about whatever you want to talk about. I want to talk about one thing and one thing only. That's Dave Foley. Oh, yes. Uh, I love... I love the usage of Dave Foley in this uh, series. I mean, in this uh, season, especially uh, compared to last season, which I thought was like the initial, like that first episode of season four, where it's like kind of like showing the progress of like the racial history of the gangs in uh, Kansas City and 
it starts off really great and then it kind of falls flat. And I think ultimately, I think even, even though there's a lot of interesting stuff in that season, I think part of the reason it falls flat uh, for me is that I don't think Chris Rock is a good actor. Uh, and uh, I don't think he should have played that role. Um, whereas um, kind of like trying to play, there's, there's been a ton of great examples uh, over the last, like, I mean, for a long time of like, kind of subverting what we uh, expect from a com- comedic actor in, in order to um, like get something really interesting out of him. We've seen it successful with Jim Carrey. We've seen it many times successful with Adam Sandler. And we have yet to see it successfully done with uh, Chris Rock, who I love as a stand-up. But um, I think Dave Foley, like, like, it's like there's like this devilishness to him, even in his comedic performances, that you kind of can play up in this. And also, anytime you put an eye patch on a guy... I, I want to watch what he has. To, uh, keep a keep a keep an eye on him to to make a little <laughs> fun there. Um, yes, good point. So I, think I, just, it, I don't know. Yeah. So Melanie, to that point, and this could be me forcing yet another one of my extended metaphors on something that doesn't really deserve it or want it. Uh, you know, the eye patch really is suggestive of Cyclops. I see this as an Odysseus story. This is really a story about Dot trying to get home to her Penelope, who's this very bland Minnesota nice car dealership owner who's the son of Jennifer Jason Lee's character. And there are sirens. She goes to a place where everybody is Linda. It's a dream sequence, but everybody's named Linda and, and they're all kind of very inviting of her to stay there and deal with their stuff there. This is, you know, it's a Fargo thing. They've got a lot of the Fargo tropes in there. But to me, it's it's not about solving a crime. It's about getting home. Yeah, and if you look, you can take different interpretations of that. Look at the fact that her name is Dot Lion, Dorothy Lion. Mm. And if you want to make any kind of connection to previous episodes, Noah Hawley says this, or season previous seasons, Noah Hawley has said this is not connected to the other seasons. But we had a Wizard of Oz episode, themed episode in season four. Um, that scene that you're talking about with the Lindas, that's a very much a Goldilocks episode. There are all these ideas of what we tell ourselves about the American story of it being mythic um, throughout these seasons. And in this one, yes, it is a story of people coming home. But one of the most beautiful scenes in the very end comes back to these concepts that are actually biblical. Um, And that plays out in the idea of what the Bible is and its power through John Hamm's character. But also um, there's a point where John Hamm's character, Roy Tillman, faces down um, Lorraine Lyon, Jennifer Jason Leigh's character. And she says, no, this is about the code of Hammurabi. And she doesn't actually say that. She goes, this is, she says, like, this is about something older written on stone. And we know what it's called, an eye for an eye. So there's different myths you can see in this season. I think that makes it amazing. Yeah. I mean, Ham is really interested in, interesting in this, too. I mean, he really does manage to pull off that uh, that level of villainy that we, I mean, the part is written as really a fabulous villain, but he's seems to be up to that challenge. So I, I think we have to stop here. Reluctantly, we have to stop. Uh, but this has been a lot of fun. And thanks to Melanie McFarland from Salon, Sean Murray from Nobody Asked Sean podcast, Kat Rosenfield from the Free Press and from Unheard. And thanks to Jonathan McPants and to the freezing cold cat pastor. We will be back next week. Past the conservatory, up the street from the seminary. You know, it's a very, very, very cool place to hang out. Yeah. <laughs> it's cozy, like a Cracker Barrel. Yeah, we all be laughing, talking, joking. Talking about this and talking about that. And talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah.
about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.